Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined today by the absolute best crew of all time. My favorites I have in one corner, Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello and happy holidays. Happy holidays. I'm, I'm kind of emotional. It's our last traditional Friday show for the year somehow. So I don't know what, how could we for ever- the year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just for the year. We'll be back very much yeah. so. I mean, we, have, we have plans. We have things coming up. We will get to that at the end of the show. So if you are a regular equity listener, one, high five, two, you're gorgeous. And three, we are not going to let you alone. But with us today for this last news roundup of the year, I also have Mary Ann Azevedo. Mary Ann, hi. Hi, I'm glad to be back and COVID free. We are so glad to have you. You were missed. Such a good reminder that like, Everyone is sick always. And what a way to end of the year, Mary. And I'm glad you're back to normal. <laughs> it was my first time. So I'm kind of glad I got out of the way. I still haven't had COVID to my knowledge. So I'm just going to sit over here in my smugness and sense of false superiority and uh, tell her. <laughs> I'll knock on wood for you, Alex. I did that. I was just knocking on wood. And I, I had that same sense of smugness and then, you know, positive. But I will pray for you. So thank you. I, I, I will say <laughs> that I can only make that joke because I'm not within arm's reach of you flicking my earlobes. So if we were in the studio, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say that. But at this distance, what can you do? Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have an absolutely insanely packed show today because there's so much going on for, for early December. But we're going to talk about Resort Pass, Post.News, the SBF interview with Dealbook yesterday. We're also going to talk about a theme that we're calling whoops involving the BlockFi bankruptcy, red flags and venture layoffs aplenty. Then we're going to touch on Pipe, the founding team's departure, what Marianne knew and when Marianne knew it. And then if we have time, and I'm not promising this, uh, we may get into some notes on Series A and Series C crunches, but that's a TBD depending on how fast we can talk. So ahem, kicking off, Marianne, we're going to the spa but we're not members, but I have $100 and I would like to have a pedicure. What's going on with Resort Pass? <laughs> so I wrote about this company outside of my normal area of fintech because I just thought it was a very interesting model. Resort Pass raised $26 million, Series B round. And what they do, um, I'll try to sum this up as succinctly as possible. Let's say, okay, I'm going to give you a real life example. I live in Austin in the Hill Country, which is maybe an hour, hour and a half away. There are a bunch of very nice resorts. Some of them can cost upwards of $600 a night to Ooh. stay at. Okay, we just have never been able to justify paying that kind of money to stay somewhere overnight when we live so close by. But with Resort Pass, assuming that that property is a partner of Resort Pass, you can essentially just buy a day pass and go hang out at the resort all day long if you want, and then go home and sleep in your bed. That's one use case. Or you could be in a city and you're like, I need a lot of space. I want to stay at an Airbnb, but damn, I wish I could go hang out at that pool over there. Well, if Resort Pass is partner with that hotel chain, you can. You just buy a day pass and you go hang out there. So it's a really fascinating concept. It has some interesting backers, including Jessica Alba and Gwyneth Paltrow. It's, it feels like a very 2021 company in a lot of ways because it's betting that people have... I mean, I agree in that I'm interested in this, but it also is kind of betting that people have like extra income to spend right now. And I know Black mm -hmm. Friday, everyone popped off. I think it was it broke records this year. So it's not like the downturn and economic turbulence has really changed spending habits. But in that way, I was like, oh, it just feels a little optimistic that people are still spending money just to do a day trip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, keep in mind, you know, we were all trapped in the house for COVID yeah. for what, good year and a half, almost two. And then like everybody's just been itching to get out and do some traveling. So I think that's one part of the economy that still sort of has, re, you know, rebounded and stayed rebounded, I guess, like people wanting to get out and do things. Yeah. Um, also to keep in mind, resort pass is not just about pools. You can go to the spas, a fitness center, which I'm not so sure, which, unless you're just really hardcore wanting to work out while you're on vacation. Like I can't imagine doing that, but you could. And anyway, it's, it seems to be relatively affordable. They said a day pass can like to access, say a pool can range from like 25 to $100 per adult, depending on the, you know, fanciness of the hotel and ch- children of course generally pay less or are free i would love to do that like for my anniversary or for my birthday like i definitely see a world where this is what i would do because mm-hmm. we'll like go to napa for my birthday this year but it was like i don't know it just felt like it's silly a little bit it's an hour away from home right and we spent exactly. so much money on a hotel that was fine but like we really just wanted to go to a winery like we didn't need to do the whole yeah. thing. And I, yeah, I mean, anyways, I see a use case. I just don't know how big yeah. it is. Alex, I want to know what you think. Well, many thoughts. Um, <laughs> so first of all, I thought the whole point of having exclusive areas was to keep the pores out. And here, <laughs> we're, we're trying to level the class structure of exclusive assets. I mean, I have two thoughts about this. One, if, if, if I'm, look, I'll use a gym if I can, if I'm traveling and my hotel doesn't have one and I can resort past the, mm-hmm. the gym next door at the other hotel. Sure. That's reasonable. But like, I think that people will want to use this aspirationally. Like, oh, I want to go to the Four Seasons pool or whatever, you know, to go someplace fancy. And then if I'm at the Four Seasons and these people come in that are paying a fraction of the cost to access the amenities that I'm paying for as part of my hotel room, I'm going to be furious. Keep the riffraff away. Keep the rabble at bay. What's the <laughs> point of living in a capitalist society that has high levels of income <laughs> in, uh, disparities if I can't make other people feel inferior? Okay, okay. Two, two things to that. All right. First of all, I did think... The same thing, I posed the question to the company, like, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you maintain like the same sort of level of clientele, right? I mean, because part of the reason certain people pay all these big bucks, right, is for wanting a certain, I guess, level of decorum at where they're staying. But at the same time, that feels very classist. And it makes yeah. an assumption that just because somebody doesn't have or want to spend the money, same amount of money as another person to stay somewhere means they're not good enough. I mean, well, that's not right. That's not fair. That doesn't mean that that person's riffraff or trashed or going to not, you know, be just as conscientious and polite as someone else. So I, I kind of take offense to that a little bit, Alex. <laughs> and then, you know, another thing, they said that they try, again, that's kind of based, that's reflected in the price. Okay. So they do try to like the higher a per night cost is somewhere, the higher a day pass is going to be. Okay. I guess, yeah, the only like additional thing to consider is this is an industry already. So I don't think it's like crazy to assume that hotels are interested in opening its doors because if you go to certain beach towns or international destinations, even in SF, you can pay to get access already to hotels with pools for the day. Like, I mean, day passes are not a new invention. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that, I guess, in support of Resort Pass's business model, because it's not like they're trying to create a new behavior or open up floodgates that had always been closed. I think about hotel bars, for example. Should, should people not be able to go to hotel bars if they're not staying at the place? I don't think so. Oh, that's a good point. That's so open. I mean, what's that, what's that, old, that hotel in South Bay that ever... Oh, the Rosewood. Yeah. Uh, tech journals would be very different if they only allowed people who were staying at the Rosewood to go to the bar. <laughs> they tried to keep the riffraff out of the Rosewood because they charged like $37 for a single whiskey. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, Marianne, see, I respect the fact that you told me to go f*** myself after my comment. Uh, but I'm going to flip it around a little bit and point out that in, in, my, in my saga there, 
I'm not the rich exclusive asshole who wants to keep out the riffraff. I am the riffraff. <laughs> so like I'm I'm talking about myself. Like cuz I'm so going to So you don't want yourself to be included? No, because I'm going to roll in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to I've missed you guys. I'm in a good mood. I'm going to roll in wearing like $8 flip-flops to the fancy pool and everyone else is going to have their butler and valet there with, you know, ice cold champagne and and rose stems and I'm going to be like, "Woohoo!" cannonball bitches and uh, i'm gonna ruin the vibe so keep me out is what i'm saying honestly ruin it i would love that we should ruin things more no maybe improve the vibe yeah, really improve i the mean vibe. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see listen we have to move on <laughs> yes fair 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 i have so much more to say on resort pass but i'll, I'll be quiet very interesting read the story and uh when they raise more money we're now guaranteed to cover them because we have to talk about it again. <laughs> but speaking of gated communities and things that are hard to access and limited accessibility in general, how about post.news? Natasha, you and I are now members of the uh, latest and I'm not going to say greatest, but existent <laughs> social network. First vibes from you using post.news. What do you think? I think they could have totally pulled a clubhouse and they didn't. And I kind of love that. Like they could have just created exclusivity, even though clubhouse alleges that they didn't intend to create FOMO. I actually don't see Post taking the FOMO bug. It wasn't that hard to keep going. Sorry, it wasn't that hard to get off the wait list. It's happening faster than I oh, expected. Okay. I, I, it took okay. me like four months to get on Clubhouse. And I'm a reporter for TechCrunch. And not, not to like <laughs> gas myself up, but like I was surprised. We're, we're all kind of getting on there slowly but surely. Yes. My big issue with Post, before we'll get into the news about their investment, which has its own conversation, is like it's kind of hard to use. Mm-hmm. Is it just me? It seems <laughs> very early stage from what I could tell, right? It's not from a CS grad, though. It's from the former CEO of Waze. <laughs> <laughs> which is a technology company. And yeah. I'm not going to lie. I love people trying new stuff. I love people trying new stuff in, in crowded categories. Like I, I would love to see more search engines, more mobile phone OSs, you know, big, hard problems. Social networks are a difficult thing to get right. High expectations because I, Gnome, I think is his name, uh, from Waze is, is part of this. I, I couldn't find the post button yesterday. Like yes. I couldn't find the button <laughs> where I can, well, the box where I can type something in and then post it. But I did it once after I joined yesterday. And then I couldn't find it again. And I, I think I clicked on like every button on the website and could not find it. And to Natasha's point about being a reporter for TC, what that means is we use lots of stuff. We tinker, we play, we're shown things, we're given demos, we experiment. And if I can't find the button that literally does the core function of your application, which is posting the news on post.news, I got all across. Yeah, exactly. And I do think the idea of like Twitter alternatives needing to kind of, and I think I, think I saw Noam tweet this, which is like, the beta is not for everyone. Yeah. Feel free to wait and get on it later. And I was like, you're right. Like, I am a little bit like, yeah. I don't have the bandwidth to learn shit right now. Maybe I shouldn't be in the beta. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much hoping and praying some of these Twitter alternatives pop off because it would be cool to have options. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the, the one thing I was most intrigued by in reading this story is that apparently you can allow, eventually, I think, not yet, yet of course, the users can pay for individual articles from a variety of news sources now rather than like subscriptions. I'm intrigued by that. And I'm still not sure how that's going to work. I mean, are they going to partner? I guess they're going to partner with publications to allow that to happen. Or, you know, anyway, I I think that's an interesting concept. And I'm curious to see how that will play out if it will work and if people will do it. Also, just a quick question. The image in the story, is that from the post app? Yes. It looks so much like Twitter. Yeah, I couldn't tell. A scrollable feed. It's like all blogs kind of look the same, right? It's a sequential like feed Tumblr. of content. Yeah. So, I mean, Marianne makes a fair point. The thing that I noticed though, Marianne, is that it's just so stripped down. Like this really feels like, it's almost like an anti-UI. Mm-hmm. Like Reddit. Yes. That's a great, it's, it, it's the Craigslist Reddit of Twitter clones. Beautiful. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I wonder what you guys think, because like Sham has been patting me on the shoulder as I've been worried about the future of Twitter. And he was like, there was no world where Twitter would have always been as relevant as it was when you first started to, you know, decades from now. So like, it's natural to see social media platforms rise and fall and change. And so I'm trying to have my heart open for new things, but I'm also loyal to the platform I started out on and had my first story live on. And so I guess like there is a little bit of like when you join a platform only because the one that you really like is in shambles, you're going to have this negative bias because it's not going to immediately be what you thought it would be. If you don't use social networks, but you do play video games, I can draw you an analogy. You know that game you played way too much because you became really familiar with it and loved it and memorized all the mechanics and the exact hotkeys and all the ways to do it right. And you dropped into a new game and it felt like it was in the wrong language. That's like getting off of Twitter and going to use something else. I will say though, Post.News, backed by Andreessen Horowitz, undisclosed amount of money. As of Monday, so a little bit old now, it had 335,000 users on the waitlist and about 65,000 activated accounts. By the time you hear this Friday morning, presume those numbers have both gone up. And uh, we don't know how much money they raised. But Natasha, there's this interesting Andreessen playing both sides of the coin dynamic going on here. What's going on? Tis the year of everyone being in each other's business, but Andreessen is has contributed $400 million to Elon Musk's Twitter acquisition. A crypto investor at Andreessen has also been working with Elon Musk at Twitter. They also invested in this company. They also invested in Clubhouse. I mean, a lot there. And I, it's, it's kind of like, in some ways, I'm not even that surprised. Like, I don't think it's that controversial. Andreessen, this is what Andreessen does. They bet on an idea and they don't mind if it contradicts. And clearly, the founders that they're working with don't care either. The fact that Andreessen can be advising Elon Musk and backing a Twitter competitor to me is like, yeah. Well, it, textbook, textbook stuff. It breaks the old rules, Marianne. I mean, we were told back in the day that investors shouldn't uh, bet on competing companies because it's, well, it's an inefficient use of capital. And also it's kind of mean. Uh, a couple of things. I mean, I think what does it say about the world of venture and startups right now if this like is barely phasing us? And then yeah. second of all, I have another example of this later in the show. So. Yes. It's, it is happening more and more. Let's go ahead and put post.news aside. We will come back to it as it grows, as we use it. If you want to hang out with us over there, I'm Alex Wilhelm on post.news. Natasha, what's your name over there? It's my Twitter username, which I'm not going to repeat. I got you. It's N-M-A-S-C <laughs> underscore. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm on the wait list still because I just got on today. No. Let Marianne in. We can't we can't properly run the equity <laughs> podcast test of your service if we only have two thirds of the hosting staff. Exactly. Just saying. Let's be brief on SBF because I presume everyone was inundated with all of this as it happened. But Natasha, yes. I'm so glad you watched the big interview yesterday live and you came away convinced that everyone in crypto is on the up and up and that Sam Bankman fried <laughs> is the person you should make the godfather of your first child. Wow. You, you saw the words. I don't know what to say for this section anymore. Uh, the, the interview was at the New York Times annual deal book summit, which for some reason was controversial. I'm going to try and not talk about the fact of how annoyed I was that people were surprised that a publication would want to freaking interview him. But anyways, SBF showed up and as we put in the headline, just claimed a lot of ignorance on on conflicts and quotes that you should think about was, you know, he said he didn't knowingly commingle funds. He said that he believes this from what I know may be. It was a lot of hedging. It, it was interesting because he also admitted that his lawyers told him that they're not very much in support of him doing interviews. And so maybe there is this middle ground where SBF is choosing to be vocal, but not in a way that's really giving any clarity. So at this point, it's just kind of this like round table. And you'll see this with his GMA interview today, too, or it came out on Thursday morning, where he just kind of is playing dumb a little bit. And I think Vice had the best headline where he was like, they were just like, Sam Bankman-Fried is looking for the guy who did this. And I <laughs> loved that. 
I loved it. Yeah, that is the vibe I mean, I'm getting. I, I don't know. I kind of go with Connie's take on it. She wrote a story with a, her own headline of was SBF's appearance of performance. I mean, if this guy was that ignorant about so many things, then what the hell was he doing starting up a company like this and raising all this money? I mean, I just... I, I'm sorry, I don't buy that he was that ignorant about so many things. Give me a break. Yeah. You know what? If if there was like one company and then there was Alameda and he got a little little confused by it. Okay. You know what? Sure. I, I'll I always ascribe to incompetence what could otherwise be ascribed to malice, blah, blah, blah. But there were like a hundred and some entities, right? In this bankruptcy proceeding. They don't prop up like mushrooms on the ground. You have to make these things and approve them and sign them. He was involved. He was synonymous for a reason with this company. Yeah. It, it was really confusing to see someone show up and act this way. And I think it was like, I honestly recommend people to go watch the interview. It should still be on the Times website because it is like you don't see someone as he even said during the interview, like the advice is to hole up and not talk to the press or people as you figure this out. He is not doing that. And I do think it's offering this kind of crazy window into how a billionaire falls from that to someone who has one working credit card in like a matter of days. I will try and share some news that broke during it kind of broke. One was that he keeps claiming that FTX US is solvent, which we kind of knew, but he says that if they were to open withdrawals today, US customers could be made whole. And towards the end of the interview, he still thinks all customers could be made whole. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, okay, well, thank you for giving us more and more on the record statements. Yes. But he said that a lot of the assets are illiquid. So if you give me my account's worth in FTT tokens, it's it's a little bit like McDonald's paying me in McBucks. Yeah. Except for McDonald's is closed. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You like don't really know what it what that means. Like what does fully holy even mean in this context? I mean, we'll keep following it. The story, like I said, is like it's not even a chapter in. There's volumes to come. And what I feel like with the way that he's handling the press, maybe he'll come on equity next year. Who Sam. Oh. Sam, we'd love to have mm-hmm. you on. We we have kind of the same questions as everyone else. But if you want to come and, and not answer them on this show. Sounds good. Let's move on to woo, our first actual theme of the day, which is, and this is apropos of nothing else that we've talked about thus far, venture capitalists and red flags. <laughs> and you know, every industry needs a, a senior person who comes along a bit like a, an unofficial ombudsman uh, or ombudsperson, I guess we should supply say now, supply a better word, um, to, to kind of say, hey, y'all been crazy. Let's tone it down a notch. A public editor at the New York Times, for example, kind of fulfills this role. Bill Gurley, an investor at Benchmark, decided to take upon himself the role of Hallmonder in the venture capital community. And Marianne decided to detail a number of things that investors should do to uh, keep them away from the, quote, investor hurt locker. What was your read of this list of best practices? Yeah, I mean, I know there's some mixed thoughts on this. Like a lot of it seems very obvious, but also if it was so obvious, then why were so many people, investors not doing these things, especially over the past year and a half or two, right? So yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and blast through these really quick so everyone knows what we're talking about. The first red flag that Bill Gurley talked about was letting the good times roll, which is essentially, I think, letting the macro conditions set the terms for your investing strategy versus yourself. Two, the lack of a legitimate board. Companies have boards for a reason. Independent board members are a thing for a reason. Not having a board, bad. Dual class stock, not good. With super voting tenants included in that. We've talked about that on the show a lot. We agree. An aversion to audits is a bad sign. Yes. Uh, Having unique financial data presentations. For example, community adjusted EBITDA. Interesting. Lack of corporate counsel is a red flag. An odd corporate location, red flag. Large secondary transactions, 
red flag. Overlapping corporate interests, red flag. And 10, everyone falls for it. Natasha, this just reads to me like 1995's venture capital advice, the revenge thereof. It is very much textbook advice. I agree. And I think that in some ways, I was like, okay, I, w- I was excited to see a Bill Gurley blog post. We've heard a lot about them. They're interesting to read, but I was a little like, all right, like maybe this is for, who is this for? Maybe it's for the early stage founders. Maybe it's for the people that like need Bill Gurley to tell them that this is what matters. For, and for that, I am okay with it. Whatever, it can exist. I have written obvious things and I do think sometimes it is helpful to say the obvious things explicitly to remind people. Shu Nyata, who was a former managing partner of SoftBank's Opportunity Fund, he left nine months ago. He had kind of a great thread that, I mean, he, he didn't make it a subtweet to Bill Gurley, but I feel like it was, which is like, he said that like a lot of the idea that it's all about due diligence is too simplistic. And really the big issue with firms making mistakes with investing with companies like FTX is that a lot of the housekeeping around legal or avoidance of fraud is done after the deal is decided, which, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, the deal's decided. Now let's hire the people to make sure that there's nothing like crazy wrong here different kinds of due diligence. And we'll link the thread. And to me, it was kind of like, okay, like you, you signed up for the Taylor Swift concert and you're on the way there and you just check to make sure that like, okay, yes, anti-Semitic Kanye West is not there, but like you're going, if not, if there's no one extremely, extremely problematic there, you'll still go. Like that was the kind of the comparison I make, which is like, you've already decided, you've already bought the ticket. Maybe the money's not wired, but like, yeah. I haven't read the whole thread yet and and I will, because I'm interested to hear what he has to say. So I'm not going to comment specifically on, on that. But I don't know. I mean, I still take still take issue. And I feel like a lot of this just goes back to the, you know, the excesses of 2021 and, and investors feeling FOMO and just, you know, not really taking their time and just more worried about potentially missing out on something and beating out other VCs than like really doing what they needed to do. And, and they let founders, you know, like we called it what a founders market at the time, they let founders get away with a lot of shit that they shouldn't have. And hopefully people are like waking up now. Yeah. I want to say there's a lot about Benchmark that I like as as a firm where Bill Gurley works. It's a firm that has the best website in venture capital. Uh, If you haven't been to Benchmark.com, go there. It shows you what old school VCs think about content marketing. (laughs) At the same time, Connie, again, Connie Loises from TC has kind of, I think, the post worth reading on on this most generally. And she says, I'm going to quote here, one problem with Gurley's list of things to avoid is that Gurley himself was complicit in some of these offenses. Remember WeWork, which promised that Adam Newman's progeny would rule the company for eternity? Gurley's firm, Benchmark, had a seat on the company's board, and it had a seat on Snap's board too. And Snap, of course, famously gave out non-voting stock in its IPO. So it's a bit like the doctor telling you to go for a run more as they chain smoke. At the same time, you should still run more. So I'm kind of torn. It's like, yeah, it's like Sequoia making the Black Swan memo, but not really changing its investment strategy, but hoping everyone else listens to a more conservative landscape. And I don't know if that's exactly what happened with Sequoia, but like the the deals say otherwise. (laughs) You're going to get an email now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) it's fine. Sequoia, hopefully understand where I'm coming from. (laughs) Natasha's email is mary.ann at (laughs) techcrunch.com. Perfect. Um, I want to I scoot along because I, I want to save a couple minutes for Pipe, but uh, some stuff that also happened in the whoops category. BlockFi filed for bankruptcy. As it turns out, if your corporate savior uh, implodes, they no longer are your corporate savior. And DoorDash laid off 1,250 employees and Kraken cut 1,100 jobs. So it was not the, the rosiest of news weeks. And I don't think it's going to get much better for a bit. But Marianne, uh, you have you have put aside corporate malfeasance at better.com and you have now picked up corporate malfeasance possibly at Pipe. Yeah. Okay. So quickly at the beginning of this, I covered 
last week. Oh God, it was only a week ago, like 10, nine days ago. I don't know. Anyway, last week I wrote about Pipe's founding team announcing, hey, we've started this company. We helped it grow. Now we're going to move on and look for a veteran CEO. This came as a really big surprise. I've been covering Pipe for about three years. Talking to Harry Hurst, uh, was a CEO, co-CEO, co-founder. All this time, he's been a very vocal frontman for the company. And so to hear that he was planning to leave and just serve, I think it was vice chairman, was surprising, right? So I covered the news because that's what us reporters do. And despite wondering what could be going on behind the scenes. And you asked about it, to be clear. Like you asked yeah, them yeah, what yeah. was really happening. That's what, I mean, they told me. They, they claimed things were going well. Things were, they had all this, what was it, six, five, six years of runway, all this stuff. Anyway. After it publishes, all this other stuff comes out, like on social media, and my phone kind of starts to blow up with all these people coming out of the woodwork with their version of what really happened. I don't know if we're going to get into all those allegations because it's too many, but just a, a quick summary. Supposedly, the company like made all these loans and lost money on them. There was a lot of allegations of impropriety. And then, you know, I even saw like, I think some tweets about making fun of our story or whatever. Okay, first of all, if every time we heard rumors or things about companies and wrote about them, we'd be getting sued left and right. So we have to be, tread very, very carefully. Even if we're hearing things from a lot of people, we have to be really, really careful because we, you know, how do we know? I mean, this is just talk. This is hearsay. But in this case, it was like just so much. There was so much chatter. And I was hearing from multiple sources, people who I've trusted and talked to for a long time. So I had to write a follow-up piece addressing it. And so there's that. And, and so where I think we've left this, Marianne, is the company is going forward with its changes to its leadership. Its reputation has been um, sullied by some public comment from folks who know or, or claim to know. There's been a response from Harry Hurst that was medium in terms of its strength. And now we're just waiting for the next thing to come out, I presume. Yeah. I mean, basically Pipe still denied. Like when I when I went back to them and like very pointedly asked about every single allegation that I'd heard about and read about, they pretty much denied it. They like denied everything. I reached out to investors. None of the investors would comment except for one who told me he was not allowed to comment. So I I'm not gonna sit here and try to I'm not taking sides. I don't know what's really going on. All I can do is report. As, that's my job as a journalist. And and if there is something going on beyond what they're saying, then hopefully it is going to come out in time. I want to also just like run through some of the allegations that have been made, because I think that Pipe declining they haven't is also noteworthy. So, so one of them was that Pipe made roughly 80 million in loans to one or several crypto companies. You know, there was also one that Hearst and the two other founders sold millions of dollars worth of their shares in a secondary sale goes back to one of Bill Gurley's red flags, everyone. Mm -hmm. Don't forget. Um, and and I, think, I, th I think more than anything, like a fact is that the CEO search is happening. And at a time where labor is like in a weird spot, there's a lot of really talented people on the market. I think the amount of time it takes to find a CEO, some saying that it's been going in for, forever, but they've struggled to find it. So now they're going public with this search will speak for itself. Let's see who they get and let's see how long it takes them. Yeah. Another thing that came out in this, um, which is why sometimes it is really important to follow up on rumors and at least ask, right? We have to ask. We have to ask the questions as journalists. Yeah. It turns out, going back to Bill Gurley's article or post, Pipe's board consisted of four people. And that included the three co-founders who are now departing, 
and one investor who was the only independent board member. Huh. Are we bullfighting in Spain? Because that sounds like a red flag. Oh my God. Should we just keep like, should we like a sound <laughs> oh where a Bill Gurley red flag comes on the show? I'd just be like, <laughs> I, I don't mean, know. Are you going to make like, sound? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to say like, I don't know what went down for sure at Pipe, but regardless, a board with three co-founders and only one independent board member. I mean, that's just wrong. Yes. Get people who disagree with you. I feel like that is my learning of the year. Like you need to disagree more. Yeah. Can I read a uh, a little bit from Marianne's story? Just one paragraph, because I I just uh, when I was prepping for the show, I I just kept coming back to this one. So asked about the allegations, a company spokesperson told TechCrunch that Pipe did not issue eighty million dollars worth of loans to crypto mining companies, and that Pipe did not have to completely quote write off any related receivables. Okay, that's a claim. Fair enough. Instead, she confirmed PipeQuote has provided access to financing to crypto mining hosting companies and said, when asked if Pipe has lost any amount of money to crypto mining entities, that as a private company, Pipe does not share its company financials. So they were willing to deny as a private company, but when they're asked to like actually state something that might make them look less than perfect, they're like, oh, JK, we're private. So annoying. I was, I'm still mad. FinTech has been so dramatic this year. Like, Get yourself in line, guys. Everyone needs to have some resolutions next year. I want to see better next year. Well, I'd also like to touch upon another fintech whose story is kind of quite stark contrast to to that of Pipes in many ways. So X1 is a company that has only just a couple of months ago launched a new this credit card to the public that's based on income, income based credit. They don't they don't base it on credit scores, all that. They're doing really well. And they didn't raise any money last year. They were one of like the few fintechs out there <laughs> that are venture back that didn't raise any money last year, quite intentionally. They raised $25 million earlier this year. They got another $15 million in, I think, October, early November at a 50% higher valuation, which they didn't reveal, but still impressive. But really what, what caught my attention is they did talk revenue numbers. They did discuss financials unlike Pipe. And they told me that they went from making $1 million in revenue a month earlier this year to now $3 million in revenue a month. So A, they talked about it. B, those are impressive numbers. Yeah. I mean, going from $1 to $3 million in, in uh, monthly revenue terms is great. It's a triple. I mean, that's a whole that's a whole year's hyper growth right there. If they can keep going, fantastic. Also, three times 12, 36, more than a third of the 100 million you need to go public. So they're a couple of years out from that. Lovely to see. Uh, Marianne, though, do we... Look, X1's a cool company, but I really... The, the metal credit card thing, why is that still a trend? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not really worried about that. They obviously are doing something <laughs> right. Um, and I, I think also very interesting, too, they, they recently hired away an Apple executive to be their, I think, chief risk officer, which is kind of a coup for a startup of this size. Apple also has a metal card. I think. Oh, yeah. We're, <laughs> so. not, we're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But really, I mean, I think the reason it's a consumer fintech company, they have not been doing that well. I mean, look, Chime just recently laid off. So I, I found this story to be really, a really interesting one in terms of their growth. You know, they're, they're re- being refreshing about their financials, talking about them. They seem to be like really focused. They're, they're like, we don't want to get caught up in the hype you know, and I don't hear that very often. Yeah. I mean, at this point, like your valuation, unless you are sharing your financials, I do not care anymore. I am over it. And I think Chrissy Farr from Omer's Ventures, former journalist said something interesting, which is like, if you're going to share your funding news right now, like do something that's actually going to help people. Right. And I think in this case, specifics hopefully is helping 
readers, founders realize like what a company of that valuation maybe should be making or what a healthy company looks like right now. I mean, we've been proven wrong, but I just like at this point, I'm like, if you say your your valuation grew and you have no proof other than your investors, I'm yeah, over it. It doesn't mean much anymore. Especially given the amount of structuring we're seeing in a lot of venture term sheets. It's not the clean stuff we saw before. There's been there's there's shenanigans to avoid apparent down rounds. So, you know, tell us about it. Well, Alex, do you hear some crunching in the background? I feel like someone's stepping on leaves. I series <laughs> A rounds even. <laughs> So sorry, I had to. Like, that was awesome. That, that was awesome. That's, that was good. Uh, I'm going to condense <laughs> this to like two sentences because we're, uh, you know, it's we've gone on long enough. Globally, it appears that Series C rounds are becoming a bit of a bottleneck. And that matters because Series C is kind of the gateway to late stage. And also domestically in the US, according to a kind of different data set, Series A rounds are becoming once again a bottleneck. And that's the kind of gateway into early stage life of a startup. Seed, pre-PMF, pre-revenue, early PMF, limited revenue, late stage PMF and revenue. And so we're seeing the the hurdle points, if you will, become increasingly strict. So that mm-hmm. to me is a facet mm-hmm. of the venture slowdown. And I wrote a lot about this. So if you want several thousand words instead of just like 30, I got them for you. And speaking of words, we will not let you alone this holiday season. We have equity planned through the new year. Looking ahead to next week, we're going to be doing a recap of all things 2022. Week after that, predictions for all things 2023. And we do want to hear from you. So if you follow us on Twitter, you will see tweets from us asking for your 2022 in the headline and also what you think will happen next year. We're going to give people shout outs on the show itself. So do drop us a note. We would love to include what you think. All right. That's us today. We're back Monday morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks. We'll see you then. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.